Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Jeffrey Raynard Allen, Bridget Hughes, Ethan Nasowski, Elizabeth Schmitz, and Margaret Rinkle. You will now hear Bridget Hughes provide introductions. Thank you all for joining us. My name is Bridget Hughes. I'm the editor of the literary magazine, A Public Space, and I am delighted to have with us today for a conversation about editing two fabulous authors and two fabulous editors from two of my favorite houses. To my far left is Elizabeth Schmitz. She's the vice president and editorial director of Grove Atlantic, where the first book she acquired was Charles Frazier's debut novel, Cold Mountain. She has also edited such authors as Tom Drury, Robbie Alamedine, Michael Thomas, Christine Scott, and Jamie Quattro, among many others, including Margaret Rinkle, whose debut novel, Wash, won the Center for Fiction's Flaherty Dunnan First Novel Prize and was a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, as well as one of the Wall Street Journal's top 10 novels of the year. To my right is Ethan Nisowski, the editorial director at Grey Wolf Press. He began his career at Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and was most recently editorial director at McSweeney's. He's edited books by Hilton Alls, Jeff Dyer, Sarah Manguso, Maggie Nelson, Jenny Offal, as well as Jeffrey Renard Allen, who is to his right. Jeff Allen is the author of two collections of poetry, a short story collection, and two novels, including Song of the Shank, which last year received rave reviews coast to coast, from the LA Times to the New York Times, where it was also one of their notable books of the year. And as of about three days ago, I think, he is a Guggenheim Fellow. So I thought to start with, I would read, just to set the tone, three quotes about what an editor does. For as many years as I've been working as an editor, I feel like I still don't entirely know what that job description is or means. It means something different for every author and every book that you work on. And then I thought we'd ask Elizabeth and Ethan to talk a little bit about the process of acquiring and working with these two authors. And then we'd like to sort of bring you in as soon as possible. I know, or I imagine that you all have some questions. So we'll try to do that sort of in the middle of the conversation. And then I might reserve the right to sneak back in and ask a few follow-up questions. So here's E.B. White on the role of the editor. An editor is a person who knows more about writing than writers do, but who has escaped the terrible desire to write. An editor's job, it has been said, is to read a book more seriously and carefully than any sane person ever would, and to note anything and everything that doesn't seem to live up to the book's own highest standards. And here is Nabokov in an interview. The interview asks him about the function of the editor, and he replies, by editor, I suppose you mean proofreader. And among these, I have known limpid creatures of limitless tact and tenderness, who would discuss with me a semicolon as if it were a point of honor, which, indeed, a point of art often is. But I have also come across a few pompous, avuncular brutes who would attempt to make suggestions, which I have countered with a thunderous stet. <laughs> so, Elizabeth, maybe I can ask you to talk about the process of acquiring and working with Margaret on, on WASH. Sure. Happy to. Okay. So... Where do we start? This is a really interesting story, actually, because Margaret's book, Wash, 
which was called something else when it first came in. True for sure, it was called in the beginning. It was submitted by her agent, Marley Russoff. I can't remember now how many years ago, for a while ago. And I had never worked with Marley before. I had admired her from a distance. And I read Wash and fell in love with it. And I turned out to be the only bidder on the book. And it was something I, I could not understand. But because... I mean, who knows why? Margaret is, her book Wash is told from two points of view, and one of them is a black slave, and the other is his white owner. And this scared people. It really scared people off. And I thought it was extraordinary and amazing. And not a risk, (laughs) although maybe it was. That's kind of what Grove does and certainly what I do, <laughs> and um, I loved it. So I acquired it, and it was an amazing thing. <laughs> uh, so I read the book first, fell in love with it, bought it, quite straightforward. And then this is sort of an interesting st- author-editor relationship because the year I bought it, our publisher, Morgan Entrican, went to France for a year. And I'm the editorial director at Grove, and I really needed to step up and start traveling a lot and going to all kinds of conferences and meetings, and I was on the road more than I usually am. And Margaret, I really wanted to edit Margaret, and we really wanted to work together, and she very patiently waited for months and months and months, and eventually we decided that the best thing to do would be for me to work with a senior editor on WASH. And I had just hired Karina Barson from the other press, and she was also fell in love with the book. And so what happened was that after the initial read, Karina did the next steps, and then the book came back to me for the final edit. And um, I have been working a little bit more in that way since, since this very good experience with Wash. What Margaret will talk about a little bit more is, is how um, she really has two editors at Grove. She has the acquisition editor and the one who is out there on the road presenting the book and pitching the book and writing handwritten notes to reviewers and booksellers and traveling and and talking about her. And then she, while I was doing this pre-publication, Karina was, you know, back in the office editing her book. And then when I came back, I did the final round, final suggestions and edits. And then we all went out into the world together with it. The book was a big success, had a huge major review in the New York Times book review by Major Jackson, she won the Flaherty Dunnan Award for Best Fiction of the Year from the Center for Fiction. She did an w- amazing tour, and the book has done very, very well for us. So that's, that's our story in a nutshell. And Margaret, could you talk a little bit about how different the manuscript that you sold was and how different the, the book is? Yes. Well, as I said earlier, a lot of the editing and the structural edits... I did multiple drafts before it even got to Grove. And it's, it's not very traditional. It's not very linear. It's got these multiple perspectives. It's mixed first person and third person. So I actually, that whole time, the year that I was waiting to hear back from Elizabeth, and then when I was waiting to hear back from Karina, I was thinking that they might say what people had said in the past, which is, I love it, I love it, but the whole thing needs to be in third person. Or, I love it, but can you just make it purple? Or, you know... And I did in the past have an editor who um, was very interested and who offered a contract on a very small number of pages, but who said her first editorial suggestion was that Wash was too smart to be illiterate. 
And I, I was thinking those two things don't have anything to do with each other. And if you don't know that, I don't know how well we're going to get along with this, right? And as much as I wanted the contract, obviously, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't go down that road. And so, you know, resonating, finding someone who really resonates with it and who, you know, is not scared of it. So I was waiting to hear that it needed to be, I was thinking it, I might hear that it needed to be completely different. And I was overjoyed to hear that, no, this is the book you wrote. And this is what we're going to publish, but, you know, let's make it, let's do uh, some things to make that more, clean, you know, to mm -hmm. strengthen that weird way that it is. So all the butcher paper and the putting, taking it apart and putting it together, all that happened before. before. Yeah, yeah. And I think the situation with Jeff's novel was, was slightly different. And I know, Ethan, you'd worked with Jeff before oh, this book, right? Uh, actually, the path of... Grey Wolf acquiring and my even working at Grey Wolf and then working with Jeff in a couple of different versions was about as circuitous and, and complex and rich a story as the book itself. But uh, I had first read Jeff's work when I was an editor at FSG and actually I was not Jeff's editor at, at, at Ferris Strauss. Um, first editor for his first novel was Elizabeth Sifton, really legendary, wonderful editor. But I knew his work and I was consulting this is more than 10 years ago now for a um, grant at the Creative Capital Foundation and Jeff ended up being one of the grantees at that organization. I was happy about it. And he applied the project was for this novel, Song of the Shank. At that time, I wasn't working at FSG anymore. I was teaching. I was helping with this grant. I was doing, a, you know, helping on a literary magazine. I was doing a bunch of things. And as part of this grant, there is a retreat for the artists and where we invite up consultants and it's for It's multidisciplinary. It's in, in performing arts and video and all these things. So there are all these curators and editors and all the stuff. And I had invited the publisher of Grey Wolf, Fiona McRae, to come up and be one of the literature consultants. And she met Jeff at this retreat and thought, oh, this guy's a great writer. And, and Grey Wolf, Fiona ended up signing Grey Wolf up for both a short story collection that Jeff had just about finished, well, not quite finished, and then for a, he had a chunk of this novel that was not finished, which is actually pretty unusual for Grey Wolf to acquire um, a, a novel that's not been completed yet. That's, it's very rare for us, but in this case, um, Fiona was very excited about the work and getting Jeff under contract and giving him um, some, some space and uh, confidence with which to complete this very, very ambitious novel. Not so long after that, I think Fiona thought, oh, that was sort of nice, and that, um, that he sent this writer my way, and maybe I should just hire that guy. So she ended up hiring me, and when I walked in the door, she said, oh, Jeff just delivered his short stories. Do you want to edit those? And I said, sure, great. That sounds great. So Jeff and I worked on his story collection. And in the meantime, he was working on this very big, ambitious novel that was taking him a long time to write. And um, you know, we'll talk more about that. So then it took a, a few years, really, of, of, editing, of, of our editing this book, not just of, of writing. And um, you know, I went through a, a few different drafts with Jeff of, of the manuscript of Song of the Shank. And then I was, sorry to make this partly about my weird publishing trajectory, but I, was, I get, got hired by McSweeney's for a while and I left as we were still in the editing process. Fiona, our publisher, who's a great editor, picked up the ball and had Jeff make some further cuts. Um, and then 
Fiona had hired me back again. And when I walked in the door, she's like, guess what? This is done. <laughs> and, um, and I read it the last time, I think. It was about four. We went through about four, four drafts, I think, not including Fiona's draft. So it was, actually, it was a long, it was a long edit- editorial process, and I think we'll, we can go into yeah. the specifics later. And Jeff, can you talk a little bit, because I know that the novel not only went through several different drafts, but radically different drafts, and to what extent it was useful to have an editor there to sort of bounce ideas off of, or, or what Ethan's sort of role was as he were figuring out what the right structure was for the novel? Yes, Ethan was saying it's, uh, the, you know, the whole process of the editing was an epic in the way that the novel is. Where should I start with that? So first, as, as Ethan was explaining, the novel wasn't finished. I had this chunk of material, and I, I kind of knew the overall thing I was trying to do in the book, but, but hadn't worked out a lot of kinks. So I can't remember what year that was. But um, but just to show how, how unfinished the book was and how early it was and when it was under contract, I mean, I, I, I was supposed to deliver the book in 2009, and actually I think I finally delivered the book in 2013. <laughs> so I was four years past the actual due date that was on the contract, and I, I didn't even know that. I mean, I think the... <laughs> To, to like my yeah, my agent, I think sort of pointed it out. I mean, I hadn't even looked, you know. But um, so in any case, what happened is first I worked with Ethan as he was explaining, and um, how should I say? Yeah, I worked with Ethan, and the book the book had kind of um, it was kind of unshapely and and things of this sort. But I have to say that a lot of the editing process had to do with my own. You know my own reluctance really to to be edited. So, so for example, when I when I was at FSG with Elizabeth Sifton, she didn't really do much editing on my first novel. She did we did some some stuff. Most of what I got from her was just a lot of really interesting conversation about various writers, and and she introduced me to writers and all kinds of things like that. And I later learned through her assistant, her editorial assistant, who I, who I became friends with, that Elizabeth wasn't really interested all that much in fiction anymore. So the, most of the books she was acquiring then were nonfiction. From what this editor, editorial assistant told me, she spent a lot of her time rewriting a lot of the sentences in the nonfiction book, you know, so in those nonfiction books. So in any case, the, the point being that, you know, I, I hadn't really been edited on the first novel, and then Ethan and I worked a little bit on the on the short stories, but they had all been previously published, and so most of the editorial process around the stories had to do with deciding which stories would actually go in the book and, and that kind of thing. And so then, <laughs> then I come to Ethan. He's got all these suggestions, and <laughs> and uh, my you know my you know I was really kind of like, who is this guy? You know, <laughs> to tell me, <laughs> you know, and uh, what is this? You know, like and. I had this really, uh, just to make a long story short, I had this really bizarre thing where I contracted malaria, and uh, this is not a lie, actually, this is all true. I contracted malaria and almost died. I was in the hospital for like six weeks. And uh, in the hospital, I was thinking, boy, I really should have finished this novel by now. (laughs) (laughs) And so I get out of the hospital in like January of 2009, and then I finished the book in three months, and, uh, and my thought was, okay, it's done now, so I'll give it to Ethan, and let's get it out in a year. And Ethan's response was, well, you know, this book needs a lot of work, and I'm thinking like, um, okay. So 
I edited, I did some work on it for a month or something and gave it back to Ethan. And he was actually kind of angry, you know. He's like, you know, I, I'm willing to read this one more time, but you have to take the editing seriously. And, uh, and I st then I started to take it seriously. So anyway, that's kind of where it was. And really, so the point being that I, I actually finished the book in 2009, early in 2009. And then I spent the next, I guess it was four years or so, mostly revising and editing. I mean, that's actually how long it took. And um, as I think Ethan and I went through three drafts, and then he went away to McSweeney's, and then I worked with Fiona, and then he came back and we finished, as you would say. Yeah. Could, could Elizabeth and Ethan, I'm, I'm sort of curious, we were at a, a festival the other week, and there was a question from the audience about how does an author maintain ownership of the manuscript in the editorial process, which seemed to me such an odd way to think about the editorial role, because I think of it as the, the editor's role is to give you more ownership of the book that you were trying to write. And I'm wondering how often there's an element of tension in the editorial process, if you have to get sort of the, past the polite phase, <coughs> and if so, how that, how that process works. There's this sort of big mystery around editors from um, first-time writers in particular, um, and, and even when an author is switching houses and switching editors about how the new editor will be. I have found that I diffuse it pretty quickly. First and foremost, it's, it's the author's book. It will always be the author's book and their choice. But the way I edit is there are usually a couple of drafts, sometimes three, is in pencil on the manuscript, and they're largely, I mean, Jeff was talking about conversation I thought, with Elizabeth, I thought that was interesting. I have comments all over the pages in the margins, and a lot of them are questions. So I will never draw a line through a passage or a page or, or anything, but I will put it in gentle brackets and, and ask a question in the margin. If I don't think it's working, I'll say, this is how I felt when I read this. Is that what you intended? So that the first draft is largely conversational and questioning. I do a lot of squiggly lines under sentences that aren't working or passages that are awkward. I put smiley faces in the margins. I'm sorry for things that I love. I Tons of check marks by everything that I love. So the first round is more suggestive, I would say. And then... That kind of puts them at ease, and they realize that you know it's not coming back with red pen everywhere and slashing and moving around. And then it, they work on the book, and then it comes back. If they haven't taken a lot of the suggestions, then the second edit becomes a little bit more prescriptive. And I still won't draw lines through anything, but I will. The brackets will go in pen this time, and I just get more direct about it. But I, I will say that I've really never, every relationship is different, but you win each other's trust. And it usually, I mean, it always happens, actually, um, because if the editor falls in love with the book, they're more than likely really going to get along with the author. And many times I never meet the author. Sometimes I speak with them on the phone beforehand, particularly if there seems to be a lot of work needed. And you want to make sure that they agree or that they think you're reading it the, the same way they are. But you form a connection with them, and you work with them in the way that works for them. And it's generally diffused the anxiety and the mystery around it pretty quickly, I think. So that's my... And is that more or less how you work? How are you 
does it, how does the shift from polite to honest? <laughs> I should say that, so to the extent that, that there was some you know, frustration towards the end of the process, that, you know, Jeff hadn't taken some of the edits, did, it, it was because the, I thought the book was so brilliant and had so much potential, but it is, it's really ambitious both at the level of the sentence and at the level of the structure, which are both very complicated and make certain demands of the reader. It's a, you know, Jeff does, writes in a way that wants the reader to do work, which is fine with me, actually. I'm happy. I, I'm a reader who likes to do work. So what it was always about that, because there was the, a lot of issues of complexity about the book, just again, both on the level of the sentence, point of view, shifts in time, you know, characters, you know, narrations, you know, there are a lot of moving pieces in a very long book. And um, so what, what I usually tell the writers, like, you know, all an editor does is read slowly and tell you how the book was hitting them. Like that, it's not it's not that complicated. And actually, the falling you know Elizabeth talks about falling in love with a book. And so an editor's reaction to a book is no more sophisticated than when you were you know eight years old and fell in love with a book. Like it's it's a fairly emotional response. It's not a particularly intellectual one. You either like a book or you don't. And I don't think that changes across your life very much. But what the professional part of the job of editing is, is to learn how to articulate that, res that response back to the writer so that they can make use of how the bo their book might be affecting a reader. Does that, does that make sense? I don't know if that makes sense. But so, you know, in a way, I actually often don't start line editing right off. I kind of try to, especially books that have kind of complicated structures, I often will send just sort of a long letter that more or less explains what I think I read, <laughs> and I hope that, I'm, that me and the writer are talking about the same book. And I should say, it has been very rare in my career where we're not talking about the same book, because you know, usually you know, we have conversations with writers when we acquire the book, and you try to establish that. Because what is important to realize is that you, know, you get a stack of manuscript pages, or a file that we print out, and it can be any number of books. It can go in a lot of different ways, and you want to make sure that if you have ideas about where the book should go, they're shared with the, with the writer. So, lot, sorry, there's a long way to say that Jeff and I were having a lot of conversations about which book this should be, in a way, and um, it had changed a lot, actually, from a chronological account you know, more of a, you know, to a non-chronological account. So there, it, had, it had changed a lot in the process, so there were a lot of possibilities floating in the air. And um, I, you know, I was trying to make sure that he was um, keeping the reader engaged. I was just sort of saying, if I'm really reading really slowly and I'm not totally following this, you might have to address this. And as an editor, I'm never attached to my solutions. What I'm saying, if I say cut this paragraph, or you know, oh, I thought it was moving slow here. So there are a million ways to resolve it. It's the writer's job to cut. It is the writer's book. And the, the times where it gets, you know, where it's sort of like we really start pushing can I think obviously be frustrating for a writer, but I think it's, you know, we're all trying to do the same thing, which is to make a book its best possible version of itself. And I remember when I was very young, when I was an editorial assistant and I got to work, he was mostly retired, but for Robert Giroux, who was one of the, you know, founders of FSG, and he was, you know, this amazing guy who worked with Flannery O'Connor and Jack Kerouac and Robert Lowell and, you know, just sort of everybody. And he, I'll not name the writer, but there was a very frustrating editorial process where the writer who he'd been working with for decades wrote back and said, I've done everything you wanted me to do. You know, the author wrote to Robert Giroux, and he kind of wrote back and he said, no, you've done everything the book wanted you to do. <laughs> so it is this thing of, like, the book tells you what it needs, and hopefully the editor can tune into it 
you know, that's a really important thing that the editor needs to tune into the book. Maybe we'll see if there are any questions in the audience before. Mm-hmm. So the question was about Margaret's agent, and did the agent offer any editorial suggestions before submitting the manuscript? Yes. You know, at one point, it was 700 pages. So, Again, it was a letter, and it wasn't specifics. It was just sort of, this is how I felt, and you need to deal with these feelings that I had. Not specifically how to deal with them. And a lot of times, you know, when an, when an editor says there's a problem and you try this and you think, oh no, their solution is not the solution, but you say, oh, it's not that, it's this. Like, so when you hear another solution, then that's when the true solution comes up because you say, oh, it's not that, but it's this. And then that takes you to a new clarity, you know. So I did, I had never published anything ever and the market was really bad. It was early 2010, and, and so she kept saying the market is so hard, it has to be perfect. And so I did pretty much a, a rewrite during which 200 pages, I mean, blood ran in the streets, you know. <laughs> but it was kind of up to me how to fix the problems that she had. And, and then she pushed, and I'm actually... I was very unhappy at the time, but I'm very happy now because it pushed me into going places with it that I need. That I'm really glad I went. More, being more clear about the ancestral angle and all of that. So, um, and then of course we deemed it perfect and sent it out. And two days later, borders went bankrupt and everything went kaflui. And you know, as Elizabeth said, a lot of the, there was other editors who were interested, but it the. The subject matter was so volatile because not only is it, you know, a white descendant of slaveholders writing in the voice of an enslaved black man, but about slave breeding. And so at one point, Marley said, the cowardice is epidemic, you know. And that's where Grove, you know, they don't have, they are independent and they can take those chances. So, but yeah, I had gone through edits with Marley. I had gone through edits with a freelance editor as well, um, wrestling before that. So, there was a lot of wrestling the beast, you know. There were many times I thought I was finished. <laughs> so. At what point did you bring, did you hire a freelance editor, and is there a point when you think it would have been too soon to, to work with an editor? Yes. At what point was it was... Yes. I mean, for someone like me, because for me, I was sort of overeducated, and so I, I didn't get an MFA, I didn't... You know, I just had a little writing group. I didn't know anything. And that sort of is the way I work best. <laughs> and um, because my allegiance is sort of to the world of the story, and I worked in this Pat Schneider method of, of accessing your subconscious, and being s- self-conscious or analytical really inhibits that. So for someone who writes like I do, an editor is really important because I write very associatively and intuitive, and I don't always know where I'm going, and then I have a lot of underbrush to clear up, so... Well, you took care of a lot of that underbrush before Yeah, but there was still more. <laughs> um, and I think it's tricky, too, because with a book like this, where so much of it is first person, and the characters are coming from an oral culture, 
that there's a certain amount of repetition in the way that a person speaks, and um, there's a certain level of the way that repetition can create an incantation. So I wanted to capture that, but the fact of the matter it is it has to work on the page, and repetition is really dicey with that. But at the same time, nobody who edited me was Southern. And so with some of the line edits, you really have to be very discerning about what resonates and what doesn't and protecting the things that you know are especially rhythms of speech and things like that. For me, hiring the freelance editor, it would have been very easy to do that too soon to make me... I would have been self-conscious about what I was trying to do. I had to kind of get the whole scope of the thing Mm -hmm. out before I was really aware of what I was actually doing because it would be too scary, you know, so... And Jeff, how do, how do you work when you're starting a project? Do you, are there readers that you show your work to, you discuss ideas with, or you really isolate yourself until you have things figured out to a certain point? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty isolated. I suppose, um, I was actually going to say this anyway, I, I suppose my, my agents become my first reader, and, and I would say in, in many ways, like the agent is the first line of defense against the publishers, if I can put it that way, or... What I mean by that is, um, you know, obviously the agent's job is to sort of know what they can sell and what they can't sell. And so they can give you some some honest feedback about what you're doing. They don't always couch it in those terms. They won't just, you know, in other words, they won't say, well, this is a book I can't sell, but they'll say something else, which means the same thing, (laughs) right? But they also will tell you, like, you know, certain things need to happen with this manuscript before, I, before I'm ready to show it. So, for example, my first novel, my agent told me that she thought the first chapter was too complicated. So I rewrote the first chapter before it ended going, being sent around. And then at a certain stage, I was working on another novel, and the agent, my agent basically said something like... Um, she didn't say it was boring, but that's essentially what she said. <laughs> <laughs> And so then I started seriously working on the on the book about Blind Tom, Song of the Shank. But um, I think at this stage now, it's become a process of when I'm thinking about anything I'm writing, I'm actually in more in communication now with Ethan than I am even with my agent, you know, since we have that kind of relationship as writer and editor. So, yeah. That, that actually also, that, that gets back to the kind of trust thing that, Elizabeth was talking about, I, I, th- I think is, is crucial. I mean, we, you know, we kind of, you, you forge a dialogue over time and hopefully when it's working, you know, the editor understands what it is the, the writer is trying to do, not just in any one particular book, but generally in terms of their, you know, thematic, formal, stylistic ambitions. Yeah, I, I wanted to just say one thing about, you know, what it is, in my opinion, what is it that an editor can do? And I feel like what the editor does really is to see things that the writer can't see, right? You know, um, sometimes as writers, as, as conscious as we are of craft, sometimes there are, you know, uh, we do have an inability to step out, outside of ourselves and to look objectively at the manuscript. So, for example, um, I just remember my novel. I had some characters who were sort of uh, secondary characters, and Ethan said, oh, you don't, you don't, you don't need these characters. And I hadn't... I had no idea of that. 
And then, you know, there are other kinds of things like that in terms of, uh, like, like Ethan would say, uh, you know, there's something wrong with the way the flashbacks are working in the book, but he didn't necessarily tell me how to solve the problem Mm -hmm. with with that, but it was something that he drew my attention to, so I had to spend some time. And then importantly also, like what you were saying earlier about how you're basically suggesting how a reader would be perceiving this manuscript, so um, that happened in the case with my book as well, when Ethan was saying, well, you know, essentially was saying, look, I'm a really smart guy, and I've read a lot, and I, I don't understand what the heck this, what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and so if I'm going to get confused, you know, then everyone else is too. So, so um, it, you know, those kinds of things were really crucial in, in terms of just figuring out, uh, as we call it, the road signs that would allow a reader to understand what the book is really trying to get to. Um, and again, I think those are the kinds of things that writers often don't recognize in their own work. So, Can I just ask a, a practical question? How frequently are you in contact over those four years? If you were working on a certain chapter that you were struggling with, would you email Ethan a question, or you would simply submit a full revision? Uh, well, I, as I recall, the way it worked, Ethan was very thorough. He would give me like four pages of notes and comments and and about you know sometimes specific pages and different things like that so it usually was a process that involved a, a long period of us actually meeting um, particularly since he was often in the west and um, and he would we would meet when he came to New York but usually there was a, a you know considerable amount of time but later well when when I started to work with Fiona who's not here but we had a sort of different kind of thing happening. One of the great things about Grey Wolf is that they, you know, the press made certain demands on my manuscript, but they were not commercial demands. So, so for example, Fiona would say something like, oh, you know, uh, well, this manuscript is 900 pages. It would be great if, if it were 700 pages. <laughs> and I was thinking, like, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> does that mean I'm supposed to just cut 200 pages, but and, <laughs> and then it got down to 700 pages or whatever it was. And she said, oh, you know, this would be great if it were actually 450 or something like that. <laughs> and uh, it was a way of saying that the book, the book felt long, but she wasn't telling me to cut the book just for the purpose of cutting the book mm-hmm. to make it more commercially viable. But uh, there was also a time when, um, so she would say, the book needs to be cut. And so I would cut, and then when I gave her the next draft, it would be longer <laughs> again because I would get new ideas about things. <laughs> and she was okay with that. But there was also one of the new ideas I got had to do with the fact that I thought I needed to use images in the book to kind of bring it all together. And I remember writing her email about that, my efforts to use images, and she just responded by saying, uh, you've totally lost me, you know. <laughs> and uh, so... So normally I try to, you know, sort of work things out a little more on my own before I begin to present questions to the, my editor. Yeah. All the way in the back? So I think the question was about the financial component of acquiring a manuscript, which is such a big question, I'm not sure how easy it is to answer, but maybe you could just talk generally about 
this one always makes me laugh because what I gather happens at the big houses, they, they often do these things called P&Ls. And I, I didn't even know what that was for the longest time, but it means profit and loss statement. <laughs> and it's, it's actually a formula. And, and you, you plug in the numbers that you think you'll sell and, uh, and, and you, you, know, you just statistically figure out how many copies you'll sell and, and what the advance should be. I've never done one of those in my life, and I don't think Grove has either. It's not a science. It really is. It, there's just no science, you know. It depends on so many things. Um, and the ideal scenario is that you you want the book, and you're the one who wants it most, and so you you negotiate with the agent and the author to just get the deal that's everybody wants. <laughs> that's the best way. But if there are other people who want the book, then the agents might have an auction. They call it an auction. And that's where everybody puts their, in their bid and um, they go with the highest bidder or they do rounds of bids and it goes up and up. Um, auctions are not something that Grove Atlantic gets involved with very often because we never win them. Um, we just don't have the kind of deep pockets that, that the cor big corporate houses have. But, you know, sometimes we end up winning a book for less money um, because the author wants to come and work with us, have a good, you know, really have a great editorial conversation on the phone. They think we understand the book. They might, um, they might just be on the telephone. They might come into the office um, and meet everybody and see that they really want to work with us. It really it depends on, on what the author needs, um, what the agent's expectations are, and what we think we can do. Um, there's so many different rights that you can buy. Um, you can buy just North American rights you know, at a certain level, but if, if you want to buy world rights, which is something that Grove Atlantic does a lot of, um, so that we can sell our books around the world on your behalf, uh, translation rights, and we go, actually I'm getting on a plane tonight to go to the London Book Fair, which is a big rights fair where we meet every half an hour meetings with different um, international editors and we talk about our books and we try to place them abroad for translation and, and, and distribution around the world. For world rights, we would pay a little more. For, you know, just North American, you know, less. But there, there really is no science. It, it's, it's about the editor's passion for the book um, and what the house thinks they can do with it. And that's, yeah, I, I don't know what else I can say. Um, there was uh, Miroslav Penkov, a short story writer, who he was on a panel yesterday, and he was talking about this part of his career. And when he was selling his first collection, he had two offers, one for significantly more money from an editor said, I love the collection, I think it's ready to be published, and another from uh, an editor at FSG, actually, who was offering significantly less money and said, I think these stories need work, and I want to work on them with you. And he found FSG's editorial letter and editorial commitment to that collection much more valuable than, than the advance. And he said, you know, it was, it was scary to make that decision, but, but sort of you only get one chance to publish a first book. And it's really, you hope, sort of the beginning of a long-term partnership with, with a publisher. And one of the reasons I'll just say that we wanted editors from Grey Wolf and Grove on the, a panel about editing is because... That commitment, that editorial commitment, is really what defines them. And I think authors make a decision to go with smaller houses for smaller advances because they value that editorial relationship. And that those decisions, I think, are, are sort of separate from the financial decisions. And yeah, exactly. I mean, the advance is a kind of a, a bet. I mean, we have to... Well, I guess one thing I should say, too, you know, Grey Wolf is a nonprofit press. So we don't make 
all of our money through book sales. You know, we get grants, we have, you know, get donations from individuals and foundations. Um, and a lot of people think, oh, that means that you guys don't have to worry about the business side. But actually, that's not true. I mean, it's just that, that, that our business model is different from the corporate publishers. But every time we acquire a book, we have to make a, a decision about the market and about how many copies we think we can sell of a book. And we try to base our advances on that. And you think about books that might be comparable. And um, you know, our advances are within a certain range. And I'm always kind of fascinated when you know, a corporate publisher says, oh, that one's worth $800,000. I'm sort of, where did they get that number from? It's just like it seems completely made up. But you, know, you do have to, at some point, think about how many copies you can sell. And you base your advance on more or less what you think you'll sell in the first year or two. Maybe I can just sort of sneak in a question about the editor's role in introducing the book to the wider world, the booksellers, the reviewers, especially in the case of Grove and Grey Wolf, because you are sort of taking risks on books that other people have found too difficult. I imagine that that's a big part of what you do, sort of shaping how, how people will read that book. And I'm just wondering how you, how you think about that part of your role. Well, that's kind of the really a really fun part of the job. I mean, the, the really great fun part of the job is you read something on submission and you think, oh my God, I can't wait to tell other people about this book. And you know, as an editor, you have a, the ability to have this megaphone where you actually distribute and print the book and tell lots of other people you've never even met before about this book. But it starts quite early. I mean, we you know we don't have big marketing budgets, and so we have a very long process of basically trying to tell people about the book because the only thing that makes books sell is really is word of mouth. People have to like the book and recommend it to their friends. That's what makes any book work. Um, no amount of marketing dollars can really get around that process. So we take a long time by, well, first, actually, it starts with kind of telling, getting my own colleagues excited about it. If I'm the first one to read a manuscript and I email it around to the other editors at the Grey Wolf staff and say, what do you guys think about this? And we all get excited about it, and that's the first step, and we acquire the book. Then we get our marketing and publicity people excited about it, and then they get booksellers and reviewers excited about it. So it's sort of a chain that start, that's going to move in stepwise fashion. But we, we work very early on to send even manuscripts sometimes out to booksellers who will t- start talking about a book very early to uh, reviewers and part of the job of our marketing and publicity people is to know which reviewer will like which book, you know. And it, that's, it's, it's actually kind of a, it's, it's a process that takes longer than the production of the book itself. So I think some writers are sort of dismayed of like, why is this taking so long? I, I finished this book a year ago. But it actually, the, the, in order for us to publish well, we have to do a lot of, a lot of things to start talking about it. But that's a, a fun thing to do. It takes a lot of work, but it's a, a fun thing mm-hmm. to do. Yeah, everything that, that Ethan said is correct. I mean, I, I think when, when I'm acquiring a book, in order to sort of gauge my passion for it, I imagine myself presenting the book to my colleagues, to the sales force at sales conference, presenting the book over and over and over again for, you know, probably a couple of years. It really is a long process. Ideally, we have a year between finished book and publication. Often it's not that way. But for a first novel, it really is good to have that. There are 
an editor's job now is really twofold. It, it's there's you know the getting the manuscript into shape, and then there's the presenting it to the world. And I always imagine how am I going to present this book and get people excited about it. And if I know exactly how to do that, and I'm a, I just know that I'm charged up and know how to do it, and just feel so convinced and passionate that I can do this, not just you know tomorrow when I tell people that I bought it, but the next day, the next day, the next day, and to an ever-growing audience. So it's, you know, it starts with your colleagues and then your editorial board, and then you start talking about it to your reps and then booksellers and then critics and reviewers. You also need to, for a first novel in particular, um, garnering blurbs is something that, that we all do with the author's help and the agent's help. But th- this takes time. You know, you're asking a favor of people to, to read a manuscript and, and if they like it, to offer a few words of praise in support of the author. That's a huge part of our job now is, is presenting the book out into the world and knowing that you're, you're going to be doing that on a daily basis for a couple of years. Um, the lead up to the publication and then and then the year that it's being published, and then hopefully, you know, forever. I mean, that's what, you know, when you buy a book, you, you want it to live on the shelves forever, and that's one one thing I do talk to my authors a lot. Um, one thing I'm famous for is sort of trying to avoid, you know, really kind of pop daily references because, you know, who knows if someone will know what that is in a year's time, much less 10 years or 50 years from now. But... Yeah, does that answer the question, yes, basically? There's a question for um, Elizabeth and Ethan about agents taking on more and more of an editorial role, and is that the case? And if so, how do you feel about it? I think every agent is different. Some agents are known for that, and others don't. Um, I think that the agents probably have a lot more input if it's a first novel, you know, as someone was saying, to, to get it to get a first manuscript that, uh, into the best shape that it can possibly be for that first sale is really important. So I think that book groups and and, and the uh, second readers and agents have, probably have a lot more input on the first book. And then, as Ethan said, after you work with the author, the editor author relationship you know grows. And then by the next book, often the agent will send the manuscript directly to the editor without sometimes reading it at the same time even because now that you have a relationship um, there's no reason to have someone else in the middle and I I will say that you know you should interview an agent the same way you would an editor make sure that they understand the book as as you do and then be careful because I, I will say occasionally when I start the editing process, I will have an author say, but the agent told me to do this, you know, and, and there's an unwinding thing that sometimes has to happen. So, you know, it's a sensitive uh, issue, and you just need to really, really trust, you know, your your readers and all the work that you're doing beforehand, and Margaret obviously did. And um, Yeah, I, I was just going to say about the... Um you know, it's almost like my business is with the world of the story and the editor's business is with the world of the reader. You know, I have to focus all my attention on the world of the story and trust that they're plugged into the world of the reader and they know what you don't know and what you can't afford to be paying attention to right then. And listening to them, and actually I was very lucky, I was a documentary filmmaker before this and really got a sense of what role the editor plays because you get this footage that's just this incredible experience and this incredible interview, and you were there, and you're so attached to the experience of getting the footage. 
And then when the editor is the first person who wasn't there, you know, and doesn't have that sort of halo of excitement of getting the footage to tell you whether it works or not. So their objective opinion is very valuable and you obviously sometimes resist it because you want it to work so badly, but you disregard that at your peril. You know, their detachment is really, you know, a strength for you. And so when you build that trust, then you, then you can let them play their natural role, and it's critical. So I don't know whether that was on the point, but that was... And Ethan, what about you in terms of agents? Yeah, I don't, I don't have a whole lot to add to, to, add. to Elizabeth. I think she answered the question. I mean, I think um, it tends not to be, I mean, for the huge majority of them. I think they give some incredibly valuable feedback that can get a manuscript ready for submission. And as Jeff said, there can be a time where it's too early to show it to an editor because it can really affect your impression. And, it, and you don't want the author to go in the spiral of like, oh my God, it's a mess. You know, you know it's, the agent can, I think, kind of get it to maybe a, an intermediate stage, let's say, before that, you know. It's not... But I, as said, as the relationship goes on, I mean, you know, we're we're in dialogue about no, new work all the time now, you know. So it it varies. Yeah. Anyway, I don't yeah. have a whole lot to add to Elizabeth's section. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Over here. If you know there's something wrong uh-huh. with the book that you're not satisfied with, and you have some idea how to fix it, then do that before even showing it to an agent. Yeah. You know, there's no point in sending something to anybody and saying, um, "Yeah, I know this section has a problem, <laughs> and I'm going to fix it." Yeah. Like, just fix it and then send it. Like, you know, the next month or week or whatever, it's not going to be a big deal. But if you've gotten to the point where you're like, "I know there are still some issues, and I have no idea how to." resolve them, you know, then that might be a point to show it to an agent at least. Let go. <laughs> well, and, and also, you know, it's, it's a living being, and stories are beings, and so it's going to keep moving and changing and evolving, and you're going to get clearer about it. Like, with this, I could have gone... Uh, another 10 years and it, it would have been a lot but you have to sort of put a flag on the play and say this is what it's going to be now you know it's a living being and then it's fixed in this very one iteration and those two things are sort of contradictory but that's the nature of the of the thing so can I just ask I just want to ask Jeff one quick question having spent so many years working on the novel was it difficult to to say this is it to let go and stop working on it no. Oh, no. <laughs> so, if if you were doing the math, it, this book took Jeff ten a solid ten years to write. So over here. For, mm-hmm. So the question was, how often do houses like Grove and Grey Wolf look at manuscripts that aren't represented by an agent? I'm afraid we don't take unagented prose manuscripts anymore. That, that was a policy we had to institute a, a couple of years ago because we were just getting too 
overwhelmed. We couldn't do our jobs and read all of the manuscripts that were coming in. And I, I have, throughout my career, liked the idea of an opening, open-door policy. And actually, when I was a young editor at FSG, I did acquire an unagented, just over-the-transom memoir. So, I mean, it happened, but it happened once in my 20-year career, too. Yeah. And what about Grove? Yeah, I mean, it's not a written policy, but we've pretty much had to adopt the same one. You know, very occasionally, I mean, it's just a question of manpower and staff to be able to handle all of the submissions that come over the transom in a responsible way. It's just very hard. But, you know, once in a while, you know, an author will have a student or, you know, a colleague or a friend and a book that they really admire, and sometimes that will happen. Um, but if that ever does happen, almost the very first thing I do is help them get an agent. Um, because it's a very, it's really helpful and useful for everybody, you know, to have, to have someone looking out for you. I think there are always probably exceptions to every rule. Grey Wolf has a wonderful nonfiction prize and, and authors submit manuscripts through that. So that doesn't require an agent. And, um, a public space recently started a partnership with Grey Wolf to do a very small, um, a public space book, so we're doing one or two books a year with them, and those are pieces that sort of develop out of the magazine, and the book that we're doing with them next year is a debut collection, and she didn't have an agent when she sent me the manuscript, and as Elizabeth said, we did help connect her with an agent before Grey Wolf signed the collection. Could I maybe uh, say something that's obvious about that, which you know, I think is important if you are serious about getting published, to really form relationships with people who can advocate for your work, you know, which is, I always tell my writing students this, like, you know, really go out there and go to conferences and so on, and the more people who read your work, the more chances are you have someone who can actually direct you towards an agent or whatever, because, you know, just bearing in mind the agents get swamped with, you know, uh, query letters and all that, so, you know, you, you really want to have someone who can who can tell you, send your book to this agent so at least it gets into the agent's hands, and that's really how you can whittle down that long and complicated process of trying to find an agent for your agents book. Agents love it when the manuscript comes to them already with a couple of you know blurbs on it, and those could be from friends, but that's very helpful. I mean, if it, you know, either from a, a review or a critic or an author, it, it just is one other person saying, hey, this is great, besides yourself is helpful. In the back? Mm-hmm. What would you say the editor's responsibility is to an author that's very resistant to editorial So the question was, <laughs> what is the editor's responsibility to an author who is very resistant to editorial suggestions, and at some point do you throw up your hands and say, it's your name on the cover? I have to say, that's practically not happened in my... You know, I've been doing this for 20 years, and I mean, every book is a process. I mean, you heard, you know, Jeff you know, kind of joking, but, we, you know, it was a process, and there were things we disagreed on. But first of all, when I acquired, especially, you know, a novel, especially a novel, but it could be a memoir, anything, if I'm interested in the book, I try to have a conversation with the author to make sure we're essentially in agreement if I have changes in mind. If I don't have very many changes in mind, then it's great, and then, you know, we'll publish the book pretty quickly, but that's also pretty rare. So, you know, I just try to have a conversation saying, I think this is what I would do, you know, to get your book ready for publication. Does that sound good to you? And if that basically sounds good, then the process is going to go great. And we'll have some dialogue and we'll, you know, I try to, all I try to do is say, oh, I think there was this problem here. You can figure out how to 
resolve it. You know, I hope you'll try to resolve it. And there is a, you know, we sort of started this conversation saying it's the author's book. At a certain point, I make the best possible case I can for a change. But, it, you know, the author's going to decide, I mean, you know. Uh, but that, that essential conversation has to happen early. That if I feel very strongly that something has to happen, I should kind of get that known um, immediately before the whole process starts. I think sometimes it's a control thing. You've been alone with this manuscript for all this time, and then, and then all of a sudden there's all these people with these ideas about what needs to happen. And like, so I think some of it is psychological. It has nothing to do with the editorial suggestion. And you owe it to your book and to your editor to deal with the psychological part of the whole process. I mean, I was very attached to my first title, but clearly this is a way better title. You know, I didn't feel that at the very beginning, but I, because I, it was a control thing, but it's so obviously better, and so you don't always know it at the time, and trust is a huge thing. You know, giving the editor the benefit of the doubt that, so... Really fine. You know, people are, they're nervous if it's the first time. And our job is just to dispel that pretty quickly. And I, I agree with Ethan. I've never had that happen. I've just never have. Absolutely. Yes. The question was have you ever seen a manuscript you're interested in and asked for revisions and then? taken on the book? I mean, if, if the editor takes the time to write a, a really thoughtful letter, then I think they're, they're serious. If we're not, if we know we're not interested and never will be, the letters are usually fairly short and to the point because you, you don't want to encourage if you don't think it's ever going to get there. But I, I did, I had an experience with a, a book that was submitted about 10 years ago and I wrote back a long letter saying, this isn't the book for me, but I really would be interested in seeing your next book. And it was a long letter about everything that I admired about it, and he completely remembered it. And when he finished the next book and sent it to his agent, he said, I I really want Elizabeth Schmitz to see it, and it came back to me. It was really great. And yes, revision sometimes happen, and and it's an interesting way to see if they they can work, you know, and revise authors on their own and and take comments and incorporate them, and, and absolutely. The question is about working with freelance editors before approaching an agent. You know, I'm. I, this is a tough question. I think it works for some people and not for others. I sort of. I, I hate the idea of you're having to go spend however much money on that, but I think it has worked for some people. And, you know, as we've been saying, for your first book, to get it in the best shape you can possibly get it in before you submit it, because you only have one chance, you know, with your first book. And, and so if that's what needs to happen, I think there's a role for independent editors, absolutely. And, Margaret, I, I didn't even know that you had. Well, I, I think, too, it depends... I didn't get an MFA because I knew I couldn't workshop this material because it was so volatile and I didn't want to be writing back in response to workshop comments. So so I was sort of out in the wilderness. And so for someone like me, and also because the book was so sprawling, you know, three generations, 
couple of centuries, you know. <laughs> so just to have some help reining it in, um, it was important for me, but other people are in different situations. So. <laughs> Over here? Mm -hmm. So right. just to repeat it quickly, the question was about when do you know that you're done, that the, that the book is finished? I thought I was done so many times. And I remember hearing Dorothy Allison speak to a group of maybe 200 writing students, and she said, oh, yeah, any of you can send me your manuscript. And I thought, oh, my gosh, everybody's going to send. And she said, as long as it's after the 10th draft. And when she said that, I was like, oh, my God, the 10th draft, that's so far from where I am now. And then by the time I finished, the 10th draft was so far past, you know. So, And also I think you, um, I mean, I had to grow up enough to even really understand what my book was about in, in terms of what thematically, and, and also the sort of potency of the work has to do with the degree of surrender that I can make to the story so that I can get the big things from my subconscious. And you don't always understand what you get for a while. And so it takes some iterations for that to become clear and you have to really let it cool and go to something else and come back with fresh eyes. And so for me, it was an invaluable part of the process, but heartbreaking too, because <laughs> you keep thinking you're done, but psychologically you have to think you're done or you just couldn't keep going. And so it's okay. But you know, also I think it's very important not to waste that first read. Like when you give it to somebody, like Elizabeth's first read, there's only one. And so it's sort of like what you said, if you're going to fix something or what, you can never have that again. So don't waste it. Give it to a bunch of other people. Give it, you know, as many times, many iterations as you can so that you're not wasting that. I think we have time for one last question. So she was asking, what's the general range, I guess, of advances, and how do you sort of... Oh, well, it's sort of similar just in terms of how many copies, how do we guess how many copies we'd sell? Basically, you know, we publish certain kinds of books, and they perform within a certain range. On some other panel, somebody asked me, well, how many copies do you need to sell to be a, called a successful book? And I've seen books that are huge successes that have sold... 8,000 copies, and books that are wild failures that have sold 60,000 copies. You know, so it really depends on the expectations that you bring to the project. At Grey Wolf, we tend to try to set fairly moderate expectations, knowing that publishing literary work can be very difficult. Um, there's a lot of luck involved, actually, just in terms of how the reviews get, if the right combination of things come together to let people know about the book. And so we try to set these moderate expectations and then work really hard to exceed them, you know. But, you know, basically, you might think, okay, well, this is a, the 18 millionth literary novel that I've read set in Brooklyn, and people are, are bored of them. So those might, that might not sell very much right now, and I can't think of one that sold very well lately. So, but, the, you know, this is a very experimental and dense novel, and we know we can sell, you know, we can, it's excellent, and we might get some reviews and sell a few thousand copies and hopefully we'll do more. But, you know, it's, it's really, I mean, Elizabeth said, it's, it's really an art. Neither of us does these P&Ls because we're really, we, 
make vague guesses because the people who do these forms make up the numbers. You know, the editor wants a certain... You pay what you need to pay to an agent to acquire the book, you know, and so then they massage the numbers and say, actually, no, I think we'll sell 5,000 more copies. But, like, you're... You know, there's a certain... There's a lot of guesswork involved, and I think hopefully to have a successful career, you're guessing well. And I would just remember that an advance is an advance against royalties, right? It should become almost irrelevant because if the book sells, you earn back your advance and you start getting royalties. I mean, that... that It's the same question, actually, because the... This is what Elizabeth yeah. was saying. It's, it, it, the, the advance is, is a portion that you're guessing of the earnings of the book. So you're guessing how many copies would sell, and then you calculate the, the advance. There is it's no sort of the magic number. number of how many copies you need to sell to have a successful book. There just isn't. A successful book could be a book that wins a huge prize, you know. No. No. Not even mm-hmm. for us either. Yeah. I, well, at Grey Wolf especially, you know, we're very mission-driven. I mean, we, if we determine that something is, at, we really think something is adding to the literary conversation and that the writer has talent and that we want to build a career, we will find a way to publish it. But we might have to set very modest sales goals, at least, you know, especially at the beginning of, of maybe a career um, or something that we really think we're taking a chance on so that the writer doesn't end up in a position of be, feeling like, oh, God, my publisher's disappointed in me. You know, because we, we want to publish not any single book, but hopefully a writer over many books. So you want to kind of really carefully build that, and a place like Grove does the same thing. Yeah. Thank you all for coming. Thank you to Jeff, Ethan, Margaret, and Elizabeth. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.